0: The sponsor for the Shepherd's Crook for the month of February is the Banner of Truth Trust. The Banner of Truth is a Christian organization which promotes books, organizes conferences, and publishes a monthly magazine. The objective of the banner is the promotion, advancement, and dissemination of a better knowledge and understanding of the history and the doctrines of the true biblical Christian faith. We seek to inform, encourage, strengthen, and equip ordinary Christians and have a particular concern for ministers and pastors and those who are training for the ministry. We also seek to produce material that's evangelistic and in God's providence may be used as a means to bring people to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. To read more about their history and mission, you can go and visit thebanneroftruth.org. Welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. The Shepherd's Crook exists to provide care, counsel, and resources for pastors. You can get more information at shepherd'scrook.co. My name is Jared Sparks, and I'm a pastor coming alongside other pastors, reminding them of the chief pastor. Welcome to the Shepherd's Crook Podcast. I'm excited today. I get to interview a man that I've learned from over the years. He actually used to be my grandmother's pastor pastor. Phil, how many years ago were you pastor?
1: 26 years ago.
0: Okay, First Baptist Jonesboro. First Baptist Jonesboro. This is Pastor Phil Nelson. Phil, you doing good? Yes. Okay, we're going to pray. All right. Let's do it. Lord Jesus, we need wisdom and direction as we talk about life, ministry, uh, several different things, and just give us direction. I pray this will be a fun conversation, and I've known Phil, but help me even get to know him a little bit more in this Conversation And then for anybody that's listening, I pray you would help them to be encouraged, challenged, equipped, point us all to Jesus. I trust you'll do that. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay. All right. So for those who don't know who you are, tell us your who you are. Tell us about your family a little bit yeah. and then what you've done over the years because you've um, done a lot of different things. Well, I grew
1: up, my dad was a Methodist pastor. When I was in eighth grade, I dropped out of church because church was boring. And... Uh, Went all the way through high school. High school is in Roosevelt, I, Roosevelt High School, Des Moines, Iowa. I graduated in class about about 470. 470? 470. Okay. And, um, and I went all the way through. I had a, from grade on, I had a hunger to know God. It was there. Uh, nobody was sharing the gospel at my high school. I mean, I went through five years in high school with virtually no understanding of who God was. I wanted to have a relationship, but there's nobody there to answer that. And, so even though your dad... That's right. As a Methodist pastor. Okay. My, my dad grew up, uh, and not to dishonor my dad, my dad grew up a, kind of a Swedish covenant background where God is so holy. It's like the Jews of the Old Testament. You don't talk about God in regular conversation. You talk about him behind the pulpit. Okay. But in conversation, to bring him into home, in human regular conversation was just anathema to him. Okay. And uh, I came down here to SIU to go to school, to get away from the parting atmosphere of University of Iowa and Iowa State. I knew I wanted to change my life. I had partied my last two years in high school and I, was a, I played football and I, had, I was on the debate team my senior year and had a lot of neat things happen. Is football what brought you to SAU? No, no. Okay. Um, actually, football was the reason I came here because I wanted to get away from the party atmosphere after the football games I went to when I was, okay. a, when I was a football player. And I knew that wasn't the route I wanted to go, but I just didn't know whether or not I was going to go. So I decided to get away from Iowa, but I was very interested in speech and debate and, but I had to get away from Iowa, so I looked around and found out what school was good in speech and debate that was outside of Iowa. That I knew was number one in, really? the, in the country at the time.
0: Are they still, they still have a speech debate yeah, team? Oh yeah, they
1: rate, they're, and they're in the top 10 nationwide, really? all, even to this day.
0: Jordan did debate over at Eastern Ellin, or uh, Southeastern, mm-hmm. right. or in Harrisburg. Right. Yep. And did the debate team. They paid, yep. gave her scholarship. Oh, we, we got, we tr- traveled all over the country. I mean, yeah, we, she did too. Yeah. we
1: stayed in five-star hotels for a really? international debate tournament. It was awesome. Man. But I, that's how I learned how to speak on, how to think on my feet really well. Okay. But when I came here to SIU, I uh, had to live at the Baptist Student Center, and it was there at the Baptist Student Center where I gave my life to Christ.
0: Now, well, how did you connect it there? Because that's...
1: Well, <laughs> because I've got allergies, and I was, I was supposed to live at Thompson Point. Okay. Um, but uh, when I came down here three weeks before school started to find out where I was going to live, oh, well, I already had the carbon copy of the housing contract. My dad was with me. And the housing department says, I'm sorry, we don't have a copy of your contract. And I showed them my carbon copy. I said, we, the only thing we can do is put you on a waiting list of 300 people. Wow. And my dad says, that's not going to do. So we found out freshman approved housing, and there were five different housing, housings that were. And the Baptist Student Center is number five. And I said, I'm not staying here. <laughs> <laughs> but all the other ones were just not good compatible living arrangements. So I ended up at the Baptist Student Center. And when I walked in the lobby there was a spirit of peace that just came over me and said, this wow. is where life's gonna change. Wow. And uh, Sam White met me and we sat down. and He talked about, if you're gonna live here, you can't smoke, you can't drink, and you can't have women in your room except for Friday afternoons and Saturday afternoons. And those are the three of my biggest problems. Okay, <laughs> there you go. So I thought, well, maybe I can change here. Mm-hmm. And then two weeks into that uh, freshman year, I uh, found my life at Bible Fellowship Baptist Church and uh, commit my life to Christ on a Sunday evening service. and and then. It, I fell in discipleship with Glendale Tony and Larry Shackley and Fred Bishop later, and I've been awesome. going after it ever since.
0: So SIU has been a part of your life Absolutely. since then? Yeah. 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 Okay. So you became a Christian freshman in college. Right. When did you start feeling called into ministry? And Two did... months after I became a Christian.
1: Really? Yes. Okay. Uh, I came here to go to school because I was going to be a hotel manager, for, forest ranger, job psychologist. Okay. And I was interested in debates. All so. three of those? <laughs> that was that was all the three I was interested in. Okay. And SIU was good in all three of those at that time. And uh, within two months, uh, the guy who started discipling me just pretty much said, when you go to class, your classes are your mission field. And you're responsible to make Jesus an issue in every class you're in. I had a chemistry lecture hall of about 350 at Necker's 220, 240 it was. And then I had an interpersonal class of 15 where the professor had divorced his wife and married one of his students. Oh, wow. And openly bragged about sleeping around. And that was the context I, my faith grew up in. And uh, so every class I was in, I tried to find somewhere to share Jesus. And... And every every Friday, I'd go meet with the guy who was discipling me, and I'd say, "Here's some questions they threw at me. Here's what the professor said about me. How do I respond?" And so for four and a half years, that's.
0: So he, you're, so the guy discipling me, uh-huh. Sam, you said Sam. No, no. This was uh, this was
1: Tony. Oh, Glendale Tony. So yeah.
0: he's saying, Phil, I think you're called into ministry. No, or, no.
1: I when I started sharing my faith on in, on campus and with professors and students, I just I became addicted to it. Yeah. And. Uh, I went home so were you street over, preaching then? I mean, did you start no, open air preaching? I didn't start open air preaching until the next year. Okay. Uh, but I became addicted to sharing my sharing my testimony and stuff and went home over Thanksgiving break. And I asked my mom, I said, Mom, um, how was it you and Dad didn't talk to me about Christ when I was going, going through high school? And she said, we knew you'd be a good boy. Hmm. And I said, would you like to know what your good boy got away with in high school? Well... And she said, how did you do that? I said, because you bought the lie that I was good.
0: Hmm.
1: Not. Yep. And, um, but then she said, how would you like to preach at your dad's church when he come home over Christmas break? And I had already felt God call me in that direction, but I wasn't going to tell anybody because, you know, okay. sometimes my own own ambitions get in the way of that. So I said, sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I come home over Christmas break, and my football team that I partied with the last two years uh, I called them up over the phone and sent them a letter and said, "Hey, listen, I got saved. I'd like you to come and hear me preach on Sunday night." And uh, they come. They did about forty of them. Wow! And, uh, then uh, I preached on John 15, 1 through thirteen. I memorized it, quoted it from text, and yeah, that was my first sermon. So scripture memory, then scripture was memory been there was a from big from the part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I um, which is still a discipline here. Oh yeah, it's not really a discipline anymore. It just it just something. It's, it's just there. Yeah. Uh, you know. Um, but um, I found the joy of the Lord in that, and um, and to be able to stand up in front of a group of people, open the Scripture and quote God's Word, and then take verse by verse and watch their faces just go, you know, like I haven't heard any of this.
0: So from the beginning of preaching, from that first sermon, John right. fifteen, you've been an expositor the whole time. Right. right? I mean, you're just yeah. Yeah. You're, here's what the Word says. Yep. That's that's how I remember you as well. I remember my grandma's church. Uh, It was the same feeling that you had growing up, this Mm -hmm. is boring, Mm -hmm. except for when the young tall guy named Phil Nelson was Mm -hmm. there. And I remember thinking, boy, this is tolerable. (laughs) 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 Sorry, first Baptist Jonesboro if you're listening. Um, I'm sorry. But, uh, okay, so you met Melanie when then?
1: In the fall of 1978. I'd given up. Uh, I thought I was going to be a celibate. I couldn't find any girl that would go out with me that was comfortable with me sharing Christ with the waiters or waitresses. Right. Wasn't comfortable praying and having Bible study. And uh, so I just said, I'm not going to date anymore. I'll just drive around in my van and preach on the, preach on the town squares and go from town to town, kind of like the disciples of Luke 10. Mm-hmm. And I was okay with that. And then uh, God interrupted me with this beautiful 17-year-old from Malaysia that showed back up on our campus. And,
0: okay, Malaysia,
1: explain that. Yeah, Her sure. parents are missionaries. Okay. Uh, she grew up in the mission field. Uh, she grew up being a minority in a M- Malaysian culture. And I always joke that's why she's so short because everybody lays short and she's five foot one. And uh, so that's how we met. And she loved the idea that I was sharing Christ and she was perfectly comfortable with that. And Our first date we had was I went to her room on a Friday night, which you could go through a Friday night because it was the Baptist Student Center. And I brought my Bible dictionary in my Bible atlas, and we took her Bibles together, and we studied on—we studied what God's word had to say about prayer and fasting. It's awesome. To this day, that's the best Bible study I've ever had. Prayer and fasting. <laughs> that's great. Um, and then that's—that's that's how we went. And a um, year and a half later, we got married in December. And I always wanted to preach on the day I got married, okay. and on my honeymoon. And my wife was okay with yes. that idea. <laughs> you married the right woman. <laughs> you married yeah. the right woman. Yeah. well Wow. And, uh, so. And me, you did it. You I did. Been, okay. I did. And, uh, uh, two days before we got married, we got married Sunday afternoon at 2 o'clock in December, right after graduation. And uh, then uh, Friday afternoon, some pastor called me for about six, six, 60 miles from here and said, Man, I've got the flu. Phil, could you preach for me on Sunday? I'm thinking in the back of my mind, God, thank you for giving me the flu so I could preach on my way. <laughs> it's crazy, but that's the way I am. And so I preached and uh, told the church, I'm not going to have an invitation because I'm getting married at 2 o'clock this afternoon, so I'm going to be out of here at 12. <laughs> uh-huh. There you go. Drove back to Myrdal Church, and my wife taught Sunday school in the morning she got got married.
0: Okay.
1: Took pictures at 1, got married at 2, I had the reception at 3, and then we were back in the church at 6 o'clock for discipleship training because my pastor at that time, Paul Hicks, had joked with me. And he's he was, still pastor there. Oh, he's still well, pastor there, yeah, yeah, 50 years. And um, But he said, you know, if you get married on Sunday afternoon there at church, you're going to have to be in discipleship training that night. And I thought he was serious, so I'm going to honor my pastor. So uh-huh. we were, we showed up at 6 o'clock, and Paul Hicks comes up to me and says, What in the world are you doing here? I said, Well, brother, you told, you told me. me. I, and I'm just honoring the pastor. Right. She said, Phil, I was joking. <laughs> I said, That's all right. So we had a great time. And then we went to flew down to Orlando and got off the got off the plane. And and uh, there were two porters there. They saw my wife and I walking across the concourse. And they said, There's a man and lady that loved Jesus. We can just tell. Whoa! Now I think that was their witnessing tool to get to share Christ with everybody who came across. Okay. But anyway, so we stopped and talked and he shared with them, and I asked if they had a prayer meeting on Wednesday night, and he said, "No, our prayer meetings on Tuesday night. But if you want one on Wednesday night, you call us and we'll have one." Okay. So we went around. We spent the week in Orlando, had a great time, and then we decided we're going to go to this these guys' church. They invited us to their church. It was an inner city African American church. So we walk into the church, and we're the only white guys, and then all black church in inner city orlando and when the pastor and sammy i can i've got a picture of him in our in our wedding album uh when they saw us come in they couldn't believe it really and uh so we walked down front we talked with the pastor and the pastor got a phone call and the young married Sunday school teacher called in sick okay and he said brother phil you've been married for a week you think you can do a young marriage class (laughs) i said sure why not Uh and uh so i did that and then I didn't realize at the time, it was cultural, if they know you're a pastor, you're going to participate in some part of the service. That's okay. just the way it is. And the church was about 450, 500 in Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Wow. And uh, so my, and women sat on one side and guys sat on the other side of this church. And so my wife's up here in the front row sitting. And right before the church starts, within 5, 10 minutes, every little kid in the church has just swarmed around her. Okay. It's just crazy. So we went through the service and everything's good. It's about one o'clock. Service is just, at started at 10.45, so it's okay. one o'clock. And I'm thinking we're getting ready to wrap up. Right. And then the pastor says, now congregation, I believe the Lord has a word from a brother from Illinois. So brother Phil, you come up and preach to us.
0: <laughs> oh.
1: And I did. Wow. I, I didn't preach very long, about okay. 15 minutes. Now at this
0: point, how many times had you preached before? You'd been preaching Oh, I'd been preaching over, over there. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah.
1: And uh, so they, afterwards they said, uh, we we'd mentioned that you know uh, we were believing God for cover our expenses for our honeymoon and He'd already done that and we we're just saying God's been faithful and mm-hmm. the Pastor says congregation the Lord doesn't want to send send this couple home penniless. Wow! And they uh, they took us out to eat and paid for our lunch and that's so it cool. was just awesome. That, that was awesome. that was how our that was how our wedding, how our marriage started. Okay, so now how many kids? How
0: many grandkids? Six oh. kids,
1: twelve twelve grandkids. And
0: the six kids, all of them walking with the Lord. Yes. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty, pretty rare.
1: And even their husbands and their extended family does, okay. which is beyond phenomenal. So is it
0: is it true that grandparent life is better than parent life even, or is that uh, overrated? Oh, is no, that over? Is that exaggerated? I think, I
1: think that's different for different people. Okay. Um, I love my six kids, and yeah. uh, you know we can't. Uh, we're separated by miles and distance from about half or over half our grandkids, and we just can't get there like we would like to. Yeah. but uh, you know, the, and when we become a pastor of a city, and um, and our kids in other places, and they've got their only families. I've tried to instruct my kids. And when you get married, you've got a different family, mm-hmm. and we're probably not going to be around like you'd like us to be, right? Because the ministry has different callings on our life, right? And uh, when we get to heaven, we'll have all sorts of time, yeah. And uh, that's still not that we're still that's painful to mm-hmm. not be able to do that all the time because our grandkids are not in the same place we are, yeah. But we do what we can,
0: yeah. You're where the Lord has you? Yep. So over the years, you've done several different things. You've been headed of evangelism for IBSA, I think, right? For a collegiate, collegiate yes. evangelism, Collegiate evangelism. Mm-hmm. So tell us, okay, different ministry stops, mm-hmm. and then we'll get into some specifics about preaching. And-
1: uh, well, my, my lifelong dream after when I was here as a college student, I wanted to come back here and be the BSU director on campus. Cause Which this is
0: SIU. We're in Carbondale, yeah. Illinois. We're this from.
1: was the premier uh, student ministry center in the country at that time. Well, and uh, I thought, man, I'd just come here. I'd I'd be great, and uh, it eventually kind of folded. before I got here, it was way down, and then we had a chance to bring it back up a little bit, but it never was what it was back in the 60s and 50s.
0: Which, I mean, they had a huge building for oh, yeah. training pastors. Yeah, that yeah. Isn't, the down, or isn't the building right in the center of campus the old...
1: Baptist Foundation. Baptist, massive we, building. We saw more preachers of the gospel sent out from this Baptist Foundation than any Baptist college or university seminary in the country. That's remarkable.
0: I've, looked, I've tried to look up archives on that. Where uh-huh. can you find information on that?
1: I think you'd have to go to IBSA and ask to them. Find, yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. Okay. But okay. Uh, well, it was you know we had there was chapel here on campus every day up until the late '60s. Really. Yeah. And that stopped right after '67 when Vietnam became pretty big. But okay. uh, that never did recover.
0: Okay. So you did collegiate ministry here. Yeah. You moved up north.
1: I I I did. I pastored at Jonesboro for about three years, and mm-hmm. then moved to Champaign. And then as I started preaching the open air, Fred Bishop's the guy that helped me learn how to do that. Mm-hmm. He, I'd, go, I'd go to Mardi Gras with him. This will be our 40th year to go to Mardi Gras. Which him. is
0: one-on-one evangelism. You're doing clown ministry. You're doing air, open air preaching. You're passing out tracts.
1: Yeah, every kind of evangelism you can think about, you're going to learn to do there. Yeah. And um, so <laughs> I learned that. I learned how to do that. And then uh, we had a campus pastor come in from University, I- Cliff Connectly, I don't know if he's still in ministry now. That was back in the early 80s and I saw him preach out in the open and really engage in an open dialogue kind of format. It was like a Mars Hill experience with the Apostle Paul. I just fell in love with that and my debate experience from college and all that kind of stuff kind of played into that and I just, that's when I started, I came back here as a campus pastor and we went to every rock concert at the arena Hmm. and a friend of mine from Nebraska said, now if you're going to do rock ministry, rock concert ministry, need to go the night before, pray over the arena, and ask God to give you free tickets to go in.
0: Hmm.
1: I thought, why not? So my first experience was as a KISS concert in March of 1986 with Roger Leib. And I won't go into all the details, but for the next nine years, every rock concert we went to, we had free tickets given to, really? to wow. And we'd go in, have a chance to share the gospel inside. We'd preach outside. We saw all sorts of really neat things happen. Um, and that's where I fell in love with open air ministry. Yeah. And then Mardi Gras confirmed that. And then when I went to U of I, um, U of I's got this big quadrangle where all the students, during passing period, you'd have 1,500, 2,000 students pass you on a sidewalk in 15 minutes. I'm thinking, my heart is if there's a huge crowd somewhere, I want to preach. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll preach it in Kentucky Derby, Indy 500, Mardi Gras. Ocean Center outside uh, in Daytona, wherever there's a large crowd, my heart just says, I want people to know about Jesus. Yeah. So uh, I started thinking about how can I do this? And then I thought, you know, I'm gonna take this dialogue that I did down at SIU, I'm gonna bring it up to U of I. But uh, U of I is an intellectual campus, SIU is not an intellectual campus, it's a social campus. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't have to think too hard down here uh, and I don't see I don't consider myself a brain. I consider myself kind of an average Joe just I'm going to use scripture and answer people's questions. So when I got to U of I and I thought I need to go out on campus But I was terrified. Okay. I was terrified because I'm just a nobody and um, So I just knew I'd get out there and make a fool of myself So I had Mark Warnock a good friend of mine come down and my intern Andrew Clever was with me and We prayed that day before going out and while we're in the, at the Baptist house there on campus uh, the Lord just kind of said to me, Phil, what's your name? Well, my name's Philip Wesley. Okay, well, said that, well, why are you asking me that? What's that about? He says, well, where'd you get the name Philip from? When I was born, my mom told me I was supposed to be Dottie Sue, but I came out a boy. Okay. <laughs> and uh, so that for 12 hours, they deliberated what kind of name should they give me, and they named me Philip after the evangelist in Acts chapter 8. Okay. My dad was a Methodist pastor, so they thought, "Who could we? What, what's a good Methodist name?" So they named me Wesley, after John Wesley. Okay. Forty years after that, I'm 40 years old at at, at U of I. It's terrified about preaching out in the open air. And he says, "Phil, what did Philip and John Wesley? What were they? What were they known for?" Open air ministry. Okay. When you go out today, just do what Philip would have done in Acts chapter eight. Hmm. So I go out there with this, just kind of this incredible peace and so we've got about 35 or 40 students hanging around and, and as i'm ask, answering their questions i see this guy walking down the sidewalk reading a christian tract. and i'm going this is weird mm-hmm. excuse me young man do you understand what you're reading Well, wow. and this is what he said i really don't understand it. somebody gave me this up at the north end of the quad and i've just been reading thing if anybody could help me understand i'd be open i said pull up a piece of grass and have a seat well wow. and he was jewish Okay. I can't remember his name, but he yeah. sat down, and for the next thirty minutes, I talked one-on-one with him, and the wow. crowd didn't even ask a question. Hmm. They just sat there in silence. And at the end of that, I had the encouragement. I had to. I encouraged him to trust Jesus and repent of his sins. He didn't do that. Yeah. But that was my first indication that you can trust God in the open air to give you words you need to say. That's good. And uh, from then on, it's just. Uh, um, there's, God shows up in open air preaching in a way he does not show up when I'm preaching behind the pulpit in the church. Yeah. Not that preaching behind the pulpit in the church is bad. It's just different. Yeah. Uh, cause you don't know what the crowd's going to do when you get out there. Usually in church, you kind of know nobody's going to give you any flack. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Every now and then they might, but right. not often. They might fall asleep on yeah, you. Yeah. They but... might fall asleep. I, not too many fall asleep on me. I, I walk around quite a bit and I'll knock them on the head if they're asleep. There oh, you go. Yeah. You don't yeah. want them to fall asleep and miss it. <laughs> uh, but I've just, the, the joy of the Lord, and, and here's the thing about this too, Jared. Um, I really believe, and I believe I got this from Josh McDowell years ago. He was on the radio program I was listening to, and he said, I used to think my family came before my ministry. Mm-hmm. And he said I was wrong, and I didn't know how wrong I was. Uh, wow, Josh McDowell just said something I, I think is heretical. Mm-hmm. That's not right. And then the radio show broke for a commercial and he came back and he said, the announcer said, why did you say that? And he said, well, you know, I used to think family came before my ministry. and I was really wrong. My family is my ministry.
0: Mm, that's good.
1: Everything I do is an overflow of my ministry of my kids and my wife. Yes. Amen. If I can't lead my wife and my children to trust in Jesus, I can't help anybody else. Yeah, that's good. And I learned that from Jack Taylor when I was in seminary. He said, you can only lead your church as deep as, lead, as you can lead your own family. Yeah, And if you're not good at your family, find a different job. Yeah. So that's what you see me do out in the public, and the things i learn, I've learned from my relationship with my kids and my wife, and uh, I couldn't do what i do without my family. Yeah, I mean,
0: eventually how you shepherd your family is going to be how you shepherd the church. It's right. just a matter of time. So there's unhealthy right. things at home, there's going to be unhealthy that's things right. at the church. That's so right. it's a microcosm. Yeah. Uh, listeners, you've probably heard me talk about the man I've, I've had my eye on that's looking to be the second man who, and I, we, we joked about this before we started, but the second man I know to finish ministry well. Phil is 60, 60? 62. 62. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if you say formal retirement age. Uh, Phil is um, still loves Jesus. He still knows he's loved by Jesus. You do, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. A forgiven man. Yes. You know the grace of God. Love yes. the grace of God. Uh, you and your wife still like each other. You just did a marriage tune-up this last weekend. That's right. Yeah. Okay, so you like each other still. Yeah. That's good. Your kids respect you and love Jesus. Most of them. Okay. There's been no hidden moral failure to no. speak of. No. Um, and you're still making disciples. I mean, you're still doing one-on-one ministry. I just got here, and my meeting with you is delayed a little bit because you were. It sounded like mm-hmm. you were discipling a guy, right. young guy, yep. one room over. Yeah. And those are the five criteria, and you still love the church. I mean, you still love That's the right. church. And I know one. My mentor, Greg Donaldson. Uh, finished ministry well, and he's still doing all those things. Mm -hmm. He just formally retired, but he's still doing all those things. Uh, How is it over the years that, I mean, I know that it's because God sustains us, Mm -hmm. but why are there only two guys that I know? And this is anecdotal in this Mm -hmm. region. There's probably more in this region, but I'm just saying that I know who are finishing well. Why why do so many pastors burn out, or marriages fall apart, or they just get uh, angry at the church and don't like church people? Uh, you know their kids can't stand them. Mm-hmm. What,
1: what's the deal? Uh, I think there are a number of things, but to me, the the, the first thing that comes to mind is um, when I used to do a lot of conferences with college students. I'd start out by asking this question: How many of you have grown up in the Christian homes? And most of them raise their hand. I said, How many of you ever remember your parents ever doing something like this, coming to you at some time in your life and saying, "Son." What I said to you or how I treated you was wrong. And God convicted me that was sin. And I'm coming to ask you to forgive me because I need Jesus as much as you do." Mm -hmm. Because all parents do something against their kid. There's not a parent here that hadn't sinned against their kid in some way. Right. And when I asked for that show of hands of how many have had parents come to repent in front of them, less than 1% of the hands go up. Wow. And uh, then I said, you know How many of you have been in a church, you've seen a church fight? Lots of hands go up.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: How many have seen your parents fight? Lots of hands go up. How many have ever seen your parents repent in front of you if they fought in front of you? One or two percent. Mm. So what's happening is they, they hear that we're supposed to repent and trust in Jesus and confess our sin, and that echoes true in here, in their heart, but they've not seen a model. of repentance and so what happens then is they go through that whole experience and by the time they're done with high school they're done playing the game and they think it's a game and they're not going to play a game because the new generation i think every generation feels this we want authenticity we want transparency Mm -hmm. and they don't see that yeah and so they reach the conclusion the gospel doesn't work it's a nice story but it doesn't work and so when you've got, and I just did this marriage tune-up this last uh, Saturday, and we had a number of people from outside the church, never, never hadn't been in church, came, and uh, they said, our marriages are hurting, and we don't know where to turn. And we, we saw you were doing this thing. It was free, so we came. And one of the things I encouraged the, the couples to do, I said, when you realize you sinned against your spouse, go to them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Confess that to them. Ask for their forgiveness, and then do this. After they offer you forgiveness, ask them to pray for you that you'll be a better husband or a better wife.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: There's nothing like that. Yeah. And you know that's James 5, 16, Confess your faults to one another and pray for another that you may be healed. I really believe the reason a lot of people don't don't end well is because they don't live a repentant life. Yeah. I'm not saying you. It know, seems live... so simple. Yeah. It seems yeah. so. Simple. Seems yeah. so basic. I, uh, Jared, I've counseled. Oh, numbers. I mean, we're over 35 couples here in the last five years, and these are church leaders that have come and said, hey, we need help, our marriage has fallen apart. And when I get them in the room, the first two things I'll ask them is, so when's the last time you prayed for each other, with mm-hmm. each other? Years. Well. When's the last time you've opened the Scripture and just, just talked about God's promises for each of you? Years.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: They're good at doing that in the church, right? But like you said, if you don't lead your home well, you're not gonna. It's gonna catch up with you. You can't lead your church well. So, and I, I told the guys at uh, uh, the marriage tune-up on Saturday. as a well, yesterday at church, I said, every one of your husbands are pastors of your home. Yeah. I don't care whether you failed and you couldn't qualify as being a pastor of a church. You're the shepherd of your home, mm-hmm. and that means you shepherd your wife, you shepherd your children. You, you confess when you're when you've done wrong. You you counsel them from God's word, not with a not with a bat, but with a shepherd's crook. I love your and uh, your symbolism of this whole podcast. It's the crook doesn't beat a sheep. If the sheep falls off, you reach out and you kind of right. have to pull it back in. But it's not with a whip. Jesus yeah, doesn't use good. whips on his kids. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm glad you got that because yeah. the whole
0: point is hey, let's come back to Jesus here. Right. You know. Right. Turn to Him, right. and rem- remember Jesus Christ is the tagline at the end. That's right. just as always, remember Jesus Christ. Yeah. Uh, okay, so, about, uh, so there's a disconnect then between public life and private life. Yes. There's, there's public prayer and then lack of private mm-hmm. prayer. There's mm-hmm. public repentance or authenticity mm-hmm. without that being a reality mm-hmm. behind the scenes. And I, I'd sat down with you maybe two or three years ago, I don't know if you remember this or not, but I'd ask you, you know, what's been... A really important thing for you over the years to uh, just in cultivating your walk with the Lord and you said that you took a once a month once a month day mm-hmm. to fast and pray mm-hmm. tell me about that where did that come from how do you continue to do that yes
1: uh, now the time that I haven't I paid for it okay um, but um, uh, right now IBSA does this for all the pastors if you're an IBSA pastor know this uh, IBSA will pay for you to have two days of prayer and fasting a year at one of their camps, it won't cost you a dime. That's amazing. And you can then be in they pastors you, for IBSA that, pastor you just, just call IBSA at 217-786-2600 and say I want to want to fast and pray for free. Uh, <laughs> I need uh, a retreat. I'm pulling my right. hair out. And they give you they they give you a twenty dollar gift card to have a meal on them when you're done. Man, that's yeah, incredible. It's, and. Very few pastors have taken them up on it. Well, I'm going to take them up on it. That's amazing. Um, So uh, I do that once a month, usually once a month. I'll leave here Wednesday after prayer meeting on Wednesday and go up to Southeast. I'll be there Wednesday night, all day Thursday, Thursday night, and end up Friday. And this may be different from people's theological opinions, but at the end on Friday morning, I end with celebrating the Lord's Supper. If there's anybody else there, they can join me, but I'd celebrate the Lord's Supper. By myself. Uh, Wesley used to do that before he went out to preach, and um, it's a means of grace for us. So I just, um, after having 36 hours of fasting and praying and thinking about the Lord, uh, it's just a good experience for me to do that and come yep. back in to ministry at that point. Okay.
0: <clears throat> okay. I had a squeak in my voice there, gotcha. so I'll have to edit that out. Gotcha. Uh, another thing that I've noticed about Phil Nelson is that he wears flip flops in the winter time. Is that a typical thing <laughs> right now, or is it? I mean, he's
1: bare feet right here. Yes. Uh, no. Uh, I woke up late. I had a discipleship meeting at nine o'clock at McDonald's. Okay. And I was, if I was going to spend extra time to find my shoes and socks, I was going to be late. And I decided I'd just throw these on because I could get there quicker. Okay. Gotcha.
0: <laughs> Riding life. I was in here in your office last week, I think uh-huh. last Monday, actually, uh-huh. or whatever today is, a week ago today. Yeah. And we talked about how you send out emails about the sermon that you're going to be preaching the following Sunday, uh-huh. and you send questions. Right. Talk uh-huh. about your writing life as a, as a pastor and what writing means to you in ministry and what it means to your people. So tell us what you write up each week. If it's
1: questions, I know you do a daily uh-huh. uh, article as well I used to I don't do a daily article okay. right now um, okay. and the reason I'm not right now and I, it's probably not a right reason but I keep thinking there's so many other articles out there that people are writing what do I have to offer mm-hmm. other than that okay but then I'll well, get past that yeah yeah but what I do uh, I encourage our church to read Like we're going to be studying Zechariah 4 next week okay so today I'll, I'll, I'll write about 10 questions I'll help them meditate on that text. I'll send them out to the whole group of the church, everybody who's got an email that gets it will get that. And I'll encourage them to read through Zechariah as many times as they want. Zechariah 4. Use the questions to meditate on to help them understand the text. Okay. Then on Sunday I'll come and preach on the text. And then Sunday after this church sermon is over, I'll email them small group discussion questions that are application-oriented. Okay. They'll say, How do how do I take Zechariah chapter four and o- obey it in my life in 2020? Okay. And so those are for the small group, small groups that meet all over the all the city at this time. So, okay.
0: Yeah. All right. So if you could, I got two questions, two final questions. Okay. So the first one is, if you could go back and sit down and talk with 25-year-old Phil Nelson, mm. and because there's a lot of guys that are True. 25 listening to this, they're at right. Midwestern or mm-hmm. Southern or, or in a church, and they're as a youth pastor and they're navigating their call and ministry and life and all that. What would you tell young
1: 25 year old Phil Nelson, and it's it's open game. Whatever you would tell him, life ministry, whatever. I, I really think that you know when I when I was 25, I was anti kid. i been really? I got married when I was 22, and I thought kids would be a liability to my ministry. Really? I did. Wow! I, really did. I bought the American lie that kids were you know limit your family to two because right. that's the right thing to do. And um, but then I've been married five years, and we decided we'd have Megan because my wife is an incredible mom. I mean, I'm unbiased in this opinion; she's the best mom I know. Hmm. And um, so I thought that'd be a sin for her not to have kids. Mm-hmm. So we had Megan. So she was already nurturing. And, oh gosh, it, yeah. she attracts she attracts every kid in the block. I mean, she gotcha. just she's a mom magnet, yeah. or a kid magnet, I guess would <laughs> be the word. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. But um, then when Megan was born, I watched what. God was teaching me through my first kid. And I watched her passion for the things of God. And um, I remember learning repentance from her in a, in a young age. She was like five or six, nah, maybe seven or eight. And we were up at home, up at my parents' house. And and um, I, that's a long story, I won't go into it. But I learned from my kids uh, how to walk with God in a, in a humble way. Because my kids, the kids see everything about you at home. Right. and um, I remember when I was uh, when Peter was 16. He's now 33. Uh, I was getting ready to come down here to lead a walk through the walk through the Bible conference at Lakeland before I was pastor here, and I had said some things that were pretty mean to Peter, and we were not having a good day at that point. And uh, I'm getting ready to leave, and my son stands in the front of the door and won't let me leave the house. How old did you say Roy? he was? He was 16. Time? 16. Yeah. At the time. Okay. Is he big like you? Oh, he's like big tall? like me. Yeah. Okay. yeah. I'm not. Quite, I'm a little bit bigger, but he's okay. he's getting there. And uh, so he said, Dad, I can't leave, let you leave. I said, get out of my way. Dad, I can't let you leave in this condition. I said, son, what are you trying to do? He said, if you go down there, you won't have anything to offer them. Wow. And I I didn't violently push him out of my way, but I said, God, I'm sorry, I've got to leave. So I walked past him, got my books, got in the car, and was driving down 57, interstate, and about 20 miles south of Champaign. God says, you you're gonna keep doing this? Mm. Wow. And I had to turn around and go home. And when I pulled him in the driveway, my 16-year-old son came out. He was laughing. <laughs> he said, <laughs> "He said, Dad, I knew you'd be back. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> and at that point, I just said, Son, you're right, and uh, forgive me. Wow. And then he put his hand on me, and he prayed for me. Uh, there's nothing like that. Hmm. to have your kids grow in the Lord and when you repent I knew you'd be back
0: mm-hmm.
1: and, uh, and my kids have done that my wife has done that and uh, I would say the the greatest thing I would say to anybody in ministry is don't neglect your family, don't neglect your kids because they show you your heart. Hmm. When I had my first child, I thought, I'm pretty selfish. Then when I had my second child and Peter was in and out of the hospital for the first 18 months, he didn't sleep more than an hour and a half at a time.
0: Well,
1: I realized I'm really selfish. <laughs> and I guess I'm just more worse off than others because I've had to have six kids to tell me that. <laughs> uh, but um, if you're listening, you're 25, um, love your wife, love your kids, um, love the church. Hmm. My, uh, my wife said something last night that I'm not going to forget very soon. We had a marriage tune-up on Saturday. and We talked about husbands loving their wives yesterday in our marriage, and our marriage ended in our worship service. And she said, you know, if you don't love the church, the church is the bride of Christ. And if you're gonna follow Christ, if you speak in a denigrating way about the church, that'd be like me talking about my wife, saying, oh, my wife is fat and ugly and she stinks. What would you think about my love for her? Yeah. And if you sat outside the church, saying, I'm not gonna be part of a church because she's ugly, she's imperfect, she sins, well, so do all of us. Yeah. And so it's high time for those who lead the church, to speak about the church with affection. It's good. And uh, good. that I would say, speak, with, love your wife, love your kids, and love the church.
0: It's good. I'll set you up, as I do everybody I interview, to talk about God's grace by just asking you, why do you love Jesus?
1: <laughs> um, in my um, discipleship meeting with uh, one of the swimmers here at SAU, we were at Luke chapter seven today. And it's the sinful woman that comes to Jesus and at Simon's house, and uh, Simon says, "If Jesus, if you knew what kind of woman she was, you wouldn't let her touch you." And then Jesus says, "I have a question for you, Simon. If somebody owed you fifty thousand, another guy owed you ten dollars, and you forgave both of them their debt, which one would love you more?" Simon says, "One, the one had the greater debt." You're right, Simon. The reason this woman's doing what she's doing is because she understands what she's been forgiven for. Hmm. Your problem, Simon, is you don't think you've been forgiven for much. Yeah. When you understand the depth of your depravity, and you realize that Jesus paid it all, what do you do about that? Yeah. And um, I understand the depth of my depravity. I know how far I can go. If God were to take His hand off of me. I'd be in the gutter tomorrow. Yeah. I believe that. And I live with that. Uh, that's where Paul says, if I beat my body and make it my slave, lest I myself become a castaway. Mm-hmm. And he says, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. And he's not talking about preaching the gospel to those outside. It's preaching the gospel to those outside, but it's also preaching the gospel to me. Mm. Yeah. God, when when Jesus says, um, uh, for this reason shall I man leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. When Adam said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh for she is taken out of man, she'll be called woman, Jesus said, you're my bride. You're bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He so united himself to us that he can't be severed from us again without losing his character. Hmm. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> it's powerful. That's powerful. That's, that's enough to hold you there for a while. Yeah, that's so good.
0: Yeah. Thank yeah. you. So good to hear that. And I appreciate you, Phil. I really you. do. And uh, thanks so much for letting me do this You're welcome. interview. Everybody, I hope you enjoyed listening. And uh, just thanks for continuing to come back. Have a good day.